Hi, this is Mara King, and you are listening to The Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on The Probiotic Life. Welcome, welcome once again to The Probiotic Life. I'm your host, Ben Klenner. Thanks for tuning in today and joining me to explore everything about microbial life in soil health and human health. And thanks for subscribing, everyone who's subscribed. Uh, It really helps the podcast. I haven't done a podcast for a while. And I will talk about that, but not in this podcast. If you want to hear more about the evolution of the probiotic life, check out the next episode. But for today, we are talking with Mara King. And she was recommended to me by some of your listeners out there. Um, And so I Googled Mara's name and what first came up was her TED Talk. Uh, TEDx in Boulder, Colorado, and her TED Talk is entitled, What Can We Learn From Fermentation? Now, interestingly enough, if you punch this in on YouTube, what comes up next to her as a recommended video is uh, Eva Bacchuslet's TED Talk as well, and we interviewed Eva on episode 36, so that one, check that one out too, and I think they sort of have similar flavors if you want to talk about fermentation. Uh, But uh, Mara, we talk all about her um, evolution into uh, fermentation and starting a fermentation business. So she was has previously been a, a chef, including a sushi chef. But more recently, she has co-founded a fermented food company called Ozuke. So uh, she shares some of her story, uh, starting with growing up in China and some of her first experiences with uh, fermentation. And then then we talk about the business Ozuke and we get into some of the workshops that she has attended, uh, internships with Sandor Katz. Now, you know, we've interviewed him as well on the podcast, and that is all the way back at episode nine. So check out Sandor's episode as well. But they go traveling through China and explore some of the traditional ferments in those regions. Now, they got someone to film it, and they made an eight-part series out of that. And I'll link to that in the show notes. Now, Maru refers to a book near the end of the episode, Uh, She says it's The Botany of Desire. Now, that's by Michael Pollan. Um, I haven't read it. Uh, It's supposed to be a great book, and in fact, it's on my reading list. Uh, But what she actually means to refer to is The Drunken Botanist by Amy Stewart. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Now, all these books that I uh, link to 
in this episode and future episodes are going to be connected to Amazon. So if you click on the link and purchase that book or audio book, then that will help support the podcast. And talking about supporting the podcast, I want to mention our affiliate microbiometer.com. Now, the microbiometer is a way of measuring microbial biomass in your soil. Now, I've heard of people using it to, to measure the microbial biomass in Korean natural farming inputs. Now, the next sort of step, logical step for me would be to measure the microbial biomass in fermented food. And I haven't tried that, but that would be fantastic. So let me know if you have. Uh, but check out microbiometer.com. Pick yourself up one today. And you, when you go to the checkout page, you can enter in the promo code probioticlife, all one word, and you'll get $10 off your purchase. So without further ado, let's get into this fantastic interview with Mara King. Today on the podcast, we are talking with a fermentation fanatic. She shares her passion of probiotics through workshops, talks, and fermented food products in the business she co-founded called Ozuke. She's a fermentation inspiration for people worldwide through her talks and travels. Welcome to the show, Mara King. Hi, thanks for having me. And you're in Boulder, Colorado, is that right? Yep, I've been here for 20 odd years. Okay, and uh, you were just showing me outside, it looks uh, nice and snowy and cold. Uh, that's a perfect uh-huh. f- perfect place for um, consuming fermented foods, isn't it? It's, you know, it's kind of funny. Today is the first day in a year that I've felt like cold symptoms. So I actually took the day off work and I've taken things really slow. Um, but yeah, you know, we eat a lot of fermented foods. This town has been super supportive of my business. And um, I think that Boulder, Colorado is a very health-centric place. There's a lot of natural foods that were born uh, from this town. And um, yeah, I think that um, it's, uh, it, it definitely lead, lends to a healthy lifestyle. Fantastic. Whenever I see pictures of Boulder, it's usually people hiking in the Rockies or some sort of outdoor mountain biking or some sort of activity like that, for sure. Yeah, people spend a lot of time out of doors. We have 300 days of sunshine a year and whether it's snowing and we're enjoying that or whether it's sunny um, and we're enjoying that. Yeah, well, um, I would love to get into what you're actually doing now in your fermentation uh, business and the talks that you do and the workshops. But first of all, I always like to go back a little bit and um, hear about your story. What was it like growing up for you? And was there any sort of mindsets that really shaped where you are today? Um, I grew up in Hong Kong. Um, I, you know, my mother was, uh, is first generation Hong Kong Chinese and um, from a very big family. So my grandfather ha- um, had nine kids and um he was the uh he was the founder of a food business as well he had a um noodle company which is actually still in operation today and um i believe that sort of 
Hong Kong's already a very foodie town. You know, they say you can eat out every night of the week and never go to this never go to the same restaurant twice in your entire life. Wow. Um, <laughs> and, you know, my uncles were really into sort of the latest food trends. And, you know, my aunties were very much into the different food cultures. It's a very, um, very diverse cultural um, scene. And the food there is very fresh and diverse as well. Mm-hmm. And and can you explain to me your accent a bit? It sounds like a little bit British, a little bit American. What what's uh, where's that influence from? Um, I went to British schools in Hong Kong, and then you know I'm and my dad's an American, and I've been living in America for twenty years. Right there, you go. So it's a bit it's a bit mixed up. <laughs> yeah, whenever I go back to Vancouver and start talking to my my parents and my my brother and sister, I just start rolling the R's a little bit more. So you, you have a, a Canadian accent too? Yes, to, to some degree, mostly when I'm talking to Canadians. That's right. You sound like an Aussie to me. There you go. <laughs> Fantastic. So, so yeah, was there any sort of um, uh, things that have maybe even a moment in your growing up, in your childhood, where it really sparked something with food or fermentation for you? Um, you know, my first career was that of a chef and I feel like, you know, my growing up was all about, you know, flavor and texture. Um, the, you know, traveling in Southeast Asia is very easy to do. You know, the distance that you would take an airplane from Colorado to New York city, you know, I would, you know, from Hong Kong, you could take an airplane and be in Tokyo or mm. be in Vietnam and, those um, those food cultures are so very different, and there's always so much to learn from them. I don't think I was specifically interested in fermentation um, as a young person. Um, I know that my mom was into kombucha in the 80s as a fad. Um, it was like this, they called it like this Mongolian tea that helps you lose weight. Wow, okay. <laughs> so. <laughs> So we had that about for a while and I found a SCOBY in the nineties and I've actually like, um, kept that SCOBY going. I think that's probably the kombucha is probably my first sort of introduction to fermented foods. But of course, if you, if you come from a place like South China, so many different foods that you consume are fermented and, um, you know what, actually there is a really distinct food memory that I had. Recently, a couple of years ago, I traveled with Sandor Katz in Southeast Asia. Um, we went to southwestern China, and we also spent some time in Hong Kong. And we visited a soy sauce factory in the New Territories in Hong Kong. And when I was there, I had the most like distinctive food flashback. It was a it was a smell flashback. So walking. Um, it was a rainy day walking amidst these old school, massive um, clay pots with fermenting soy sauce in them. The smell, the aroma that rose off of those pots took me directly back to my childhood. I spent a lot of time running around in the New Territories in Fanling um, at my grandparents' house. And, you know, that smell was undeniably a part of the, that place, that space and time. Um, 
I think it's really interesting. I just spent some time um, at Sandor's place cooking and um, meeting with other fermentation enthusiasts. And um, one of my dear friends, um, Pal, who lives in London, she's from Taiwan. She had a revelation. She's like, you know, I've been eating all these things my whole life, all of these ingredients. And I just use them as ingredients. I didn't know how they were made. I didn't know that they're all fermented ingredients. Mm, mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting that you can be so familiar with something that you don't, um, you sort of don't recognize the significance of it, like culture? Well, I think that culture is um, limitless in its diversity. So once you start going down the rabbit hole, so you might know certain things about an ingredient. So you might know, okay, red rice um, in the West, people use red rice as a, a nutritional supplement and it's good for lowering blood pressure. You know, you might know this one thing about an ingredient and then you, you know, you might also know, Oh, red rice is monascus purpureus and it's sort of like Koji and it's, you know, fermented onto rice grains. Um, and then you might also know, oh, red rice, it is used as a coloring agent and used in a lot of traditional Chinese, Filipino, uh, Indonesian foods to color foods red. Um, or you might know that uh, it's a winemaking agent and you use it in, um, in village life in Hakka culture for making red wine, uh, red, red rice wine, sorry. So it's like you could you could know one thing about a thing and that you could you could work off of that one bit of knowledge for a long time. And it's really fun and exciting to know that, you know, within my own culture and within these ingredients that I've grown up with and I've enjoyed, I'm still learning and discovering more and more. Mm, mm-hmm. um, you've definitely inspired me. The TED talk that you did, Mara. Um, I recommend all listeners go out there. I'll put a link in the podcast. Uh, check out Amara's TED Talk. But you mentioned that our starter culture is like human cultural history, a, a way of mm. preserving uh, where we're from. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? You know, I was thinking about that when I was putting my talk together. And, you know, frankly, I didn't say any of this in the actual talk. Um, but I was thinking about, you know, um, how culture in the United States of America, if you are somewhere in the middle of America, like I am, and you go to the store and you see the products on offer, um, it's pretty, the, 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 uh, the scene that you see is almost exactly the same everywhere that you go across the country. Now, there are some subtle differences, of course, like you produce in California seasonally is going to be different than produce in Maine seasonally. Um, but we do have this sort of industrial um, commercial powerhouse that drives what we consume. And, you know, I was thinking about why is that so much the case? I know that that's becoming more the case all over the world is this, you know, large scale agriculture and um, large, large scale manufacturing commerce of food spreads. Um, but in, you know, I think of Hong Kong and I think of Vietnam and the, there is so much more diversity in those places. And then I started to think, well, perhaps it's because of colonialism and perhaps it's because the, um, the tie to, 
um, tradition in this land has been quite quite literally like taken away from the people of this land. You know, the, the story of the Native Americans and what's happened to their history and culture, it's a, it's a very sad and sorry tale. Um, you know, what I would love to do at some point in my life is to delve further into those food traditions and learn, you know, of the amazing diversity of plants and animals in this country, what are the traditions of preparation? What are the traditions of fermentation? What are the traditions of um, hunting and gathering? Mm, mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. that's so similar to the Aboriginal Australians um, mm-hmm. with with the British coming in. And what I've recently been learning about is the stolen generation. So in the, you know, 50s to 70s, um, kids who were quote-unquote half-breeds, they, they would be taken away from their parents and um, uh, what's, the, what's the word you call for it? Basically uh, trained to live in a, in a British, in Australian society. So they didn't mm-hmm. get that transfer of knowledge, get that transfer of information. It's so sad. But in my research, I actually found that there was parts of Australia where they made bread and not just unleavened bread. They used to get the, um, the uh, gullet from a duck and mix that stuff mm. in with the uh, gr- grain and it would start mm. to ferment. So in every culture, there's some sort of fermentation. Yeah, I mean, and even even in new American culture, like if you look at um, cowboy culture, they even had some really crazy ferments going on out here. Um, have you ever... Gosh, I forget the name of the bread, but there's a there's a special kind of bread that the cowboys used to make, which was a fermented culture based off of um, the botulism. No, uh, I haven't heard of that. Sport, yeah, yeah, it's like a poison bread, and you have to you use it and you you rise it in a certain way, and you have to bake it a certain amount of time to make sure that it's not poison bread. Wow, that <laughs> <laughs> sounds like Russian roulette for sure. <laughs> I think actually we we made that we made that bread two years ago, um, no one year ago at, at Sandor's and it was actually really great bread. Ooh. You just have to know if if you know the secrets, right? If you know the ways of the bacteria, if you know how they behave, then you can just do a little dance with them and make sure that everything turns out how you wish. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. So so take us back to when you started to. Uh, dance with fermentation. What was your first sort of experiences or what really got you hooked there? Um, It was in the back um, of the restaurants that I would work in. So I would always, I'd started doing these little stinky experiments. Um, I'd make kimchi and I made like, I remember the Brussels sprout kimchi I made was particularly (laughs) odiferous, but it was also really, really delicious um, and there was always like the kombucha bubbling away in the background. I was very proud of my, I called it combate. I made like, I made, I made a kombucha scoby and I, I, I fed it mate instead of tea. And it oh, was, great. that was really delicious. Yep. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, as a chef, I, very, it's a very busy lifestyle. Um, but 
having these little experiments going on in the background were always that and foraging. So, you know, I had one job as a chef where I was fermenting in the back of the house. And then I would also, um, before service, walk the land around the restaurant and pick from the herbs and use those as garnish. Um, so I think that, you know, my interest in uh, wild crafting sort of grew alongside my interest in fermentation. Mm, wild crafting that's been coming more um on my radar have you have you um uh seen that book the wild crafted the new wild crafted cuisine by pascal Baudard? yes i've got that book it's really beautiful i'm, I'm sure you probably yeah worked with him too have you no i actually have never met pascal Baudard. Okay. i'd he, love to he's very inspirational and that book is wow it's it's awesome what an inspiration uh, LA is definitely on my radar. There's so much cool stuff going on there. You know, there's Pascal Bodor, there's Sonoko Sakai. Um, there's amazing restaurants. They have like a cool, like vegan street food, Chinese scene. Like there's all kinds of cool stuff going on in LA. I definitely want to check it out. Fantastic. I would love to too. Um, mm -hmm. so, so then take us to when you started your business uh, with, Willow, mm. with Willow. Yeah, so Willow and I have been really good friends here in Colorado since uh, we were in our 20s. And um, I was a chef at that time. And I think that um, the business started as a career transition for me. You know, I had been chefing for a while. The restaurant that I was working in, that actually it was this beautiful restaurant that was up in the mountains where I would walk and wildcraft before service. Um, it closed down because... Um, of the economic downturn. I think it was like 2008 or 2009. Yeah, 2009 at the time. So, you know, restaurants were not doing very well in the US. Um, business was not doing so well in the US at that time. Um, so the restaurant I was working in closed down and I took a little time off from working in restaurants just to sort of think about what do I want to do next? Um, because it's kind of a big deal jumping into another head chef job. Um, and, uh, Willow and I would get together on my days off or, or when we had time off together and we would do food projects. So she had just recently returned from Napa. She had been living in Napa, California and had started canning and preserving things because of all the fruit trees that were around her house. Um, so we would do projects. So we'd choose like two or three projects and work all day long on these projects. And we would make cheese, we would make sausage. Um, and we kept coming back to the fermented foods, like the kimchi, the sauerkraut, because they were so simple and so good. Um, and then at some point, a friend of mine who had been bugging me for a while, you got to start a business, you got to open a restaurant, do something. Um, I presented him with the idea of doing pickles and he's like that's a great idea because nobody's doing it it's really healthy and it's really simple so that's that was sort of the birth of our business we registered our business in 2011 and um uh we were picked up very quickly by lucky's which was a local chain and whole foods put us in regionally which very quickly as well so rushing to keep up with the demand we grew our business quite um quite rapidly in the in those early days mm, mm -hmm. and what was the the feedback that you got from your different flavors and, and different ferments um farmer's market was actually a really great 
venue for us. The Boulder Farmers Market is quite a uh, a robust and res respectable um, farmers market that's been going on for many years, and. Um, I would come up with some crazier stuff and we would test it all out and people would, you know, you, the, the great thing about that is when you're feeding hundreds of people going by every day, you get immediate feedback mm -hmm. and, you know, it's, it's quite predictable. Some of the wilder stuff, you know, when I was making like, um, I was making spruce tips, kimchi or spruce tips, um, sauerkraut. Um, that was only a hit with a few people. That was a little too exotic for most. But, you know, always the kimchi was a big hit. Always the citrus ginger kraut was a big hit. And then the, there's this one beets dish that I make with beets, um, dulse seaweed and kale that mm. was always a big hit. So, you know, we just sort of took the front runners and, and went with those. Fantastic. I'm just, uh, you know, like you talk about these foods and I'm... I'm I'm getting hungry. I can, I can salivating right now just thinking about I mean, you know, my, <laughs> my background. My dad was born in Germany. And so I've always loved um, sauerkraut and rotkohl, especially the red cabbage and the, mm. the, the pickles. So I think anybody listening to this who has some sort of idea of fermentation, traditional fermentation, you're sparking some, uh, some memories and some juices going right now. Uh, I was, I've, I'm always inspired by sort of, um, I'm always inspired by flavor and I'm inspired by simplicity. You know, I spent many years, probably about 17 years working as a sushi chef and um, have a great respect for Japanese cuisine. And Cantonese cuisine is the same way. They're not super into heavy spices or it's really all about um, minimalist cuisine so it's about the ingredients. What are the, what's the most flavor and texture that you can get out of the fewest ingredients? Mm. So I really, I really take that approach with my, with my krauts and my kimchi. Is you know how can I get these ingredients to sing with um, the least number of ingredients added? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And ozuke, that's a, a Japanese word. Is that right? Um, ozuke is a kind of a made-up word. It, the company started as Zuke, um, just Zuke. Uh, like my my tag on um, on Instagram is Zuke Mono, um, which just means to pickle or pickled things. And um, we added the O because there was another company in the U.S. called Zuke who didn't want us to call ourselves that. <laughs> cool. So a made-up word, a fermented word, is it? Well, the o, o in Japanese culture symbolizes like, um, you know, your your grandfather is your ototo and, um, you know, in, in Hawaiian, your family is your ohana. It, like O is like respectful and mm. um, good. I like that. I like that. Yeah. So, so along this, you started the business um, and you got, you got some uh, great opportunities, some success. When did you start to sort of branch out and, and do other things, work with sand or start doing workshops, those sort of things? The workshops were always sort of um, a hand-in-hand -hand thing. Um, I really feel like fermentation, especially, you know, like it's my business is eight years old this spring. So think back eight years ago, you know, how new fermentation must have been. It's still new now. You know, mm. people are sort of getting the hang of it. People are getting, starting to understand the importance of it. Um, but back then it was really new and a lot of people really just didn't get it. 
it was funny, you know, at the farmer's market that we used to play this like where's Waldo game because we'd take our ferments out and of course, fermented foods have a smell to them, you know, and the smell drifts out into the crowd. And most people, they sort of, they, they drift over because they smell garlic and they drift over because they smell the sour or they mm. smell the kimchi and they, they're excited by it. But in the crowd, you know, one in a thousand people that walk by, one person shrinks away like, you know, the vampire shrinks away from the garlic. <laughs> you can see them. They're like, oh, <laughs> So, um, you know, I think that fermented foods are a very happy memory for a lot of people, but for a few people who probably ate sauerkraut heated up out of a can, it's not a happy memory. Mm -hmm. um, so, so to um, a large part of growing the business was growing education about fermented foods. Mm -hmm. The number one question we got with was, okay, now I've got this, what do I do with it? Right. Okay. So, so people are buying it. They're like, "Oh, I want to do something with this," and they take it home. And then, then what happens then? Then they don't know what to do with it. So, you know, I, I, you know, back when I had more time, when the business was young, we would blog a lot. Um, we would, I would come up with recipes and put them online. Uh, we would teach workshops, um, teaching about how to make sauerkraut yourself at home i didn't feel like was you know any it wasn't going to diminish my business in mm -hmm. fact it would just help people understand the foods on a more intimate level um and then you know we just carried on that way and it's only recently that i've started to travel and teach um with with my knowledge and understanding of fermented foods and um my relationship with sandor began um I think four years ago, I attended one of his workshops in Tennessee. I had a really wonderful time. And uh, we were having a conversation during that workshop going through Sandor's amazing food library. And he was saying there is, there's no, there's very little literature on fermented foods in China. And so we started talking about China and he said, let's go on a trip. So um, my working with Sandor started with um, that question. Let's go on a trip. Mm. Okay, share with us a little bit about what that was like doing the, because it was like an intensive uh, workshop at his place, right? You stay there for a little while. Is that right? Yes. And, and since then, I've done two more intensives at his house. Um, so uh, I went last year and this year again, and those workshops are so wonderful. So um, for when it's a four-day intensive workshop, which I know doesn't sound like a lot of time when it comes to fermented foods, but um, Sandor's really got it down to science. He really fits a lot of stuff in. And so for those four days, it's just really hands-on. We make, um, actually, we make whatever the crowd is interested in, right? Mm. So people apply from all across the world. They write down what they're interested in working on, what they're working on in their own fermentation practice right now. Um, and, uh, we, you know, we all come together and we work on those projects. So for example, in this last round of fermentation, um, workshops, we made koji, we made soy sauce, we made dobanjang, um, we made rye bread, sourdough bread, yogurt, um, we made kimchi, we made fermented beverages, we made sake, 
Um, and we also ate a lot of other <laughs> fermented foods as well. <laughs> All of that in four days. All of that in four days. And every single meal, you know, Sandor has an amazing, beautiful, open kitchen. And of course, he has a cellar full of ferments and shelves full of fermented foods. So every single meal, we would call upon these different things. So that uh, that wasn't even the whole list. We made like buckwheat bread. We made uh, idli and dosa. Um, we made uh, sourdough um, pizzas. And so every every meal, those fermented foods that we were talking about during the day would take a starring role in, in, you know, breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Mm, mm -hmm. And then um, from, or not, not this last time, but when you first worked with them after that, that started the ball rolling of doing some more exploring into fermentation. And so I think mm -hmm. I might've, we interviewed um, Sandor Katz on the podcast. I think he just came back from his either just came back or just went. So that was in 2017, was it 2016? Yeah, it was 2016 into 2017 okay. when we went to China. Yeah, so we went in November. And tell us, share share with us about that. Um, that was an amazing trip, and I don't think we. So you've seen the films that we made of those. That I, trip, I haven't right? seen all of them. No, um, but um, I saw a couple of them just to start off. Yeah. So there's eight short movies um, that are available on YouTube. And I don't think we'd originally, we didn't set out to make movies. Um, we'd set out to travel. Um, specifically, we set out to travel to some villages that my mother has been traveling to for the past 25 years um, in her own sort of anthropological research that she does on textiles. Mm. Um so we knew about some fermentation traditions from those villages and we were setting out to look at those and we chose a couple of other de destinations. And as I started to do some research and fill out um, some of the places that we would visit on the trip, then Sandor started to say, oh, this looks like a really interesting trip that's shaping up. Um, you know, I'm going to ask this kid that I met um, in India to come along and document the trip. And um, that that kid was um, Matia Sakoboto, who um, had been in India doing some film documentation on indigenous people there. That's mm. amazing. And, and from what I saw, it seems like all the people that you um, talked to and interviewed, they're really friendly. They wanted to share all their knowledge with you. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, people in China are super friendly <laughs> and, um, you know, food people everywhere are generally pretty geeky about what they do. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, we sat down with chefs, we sat down with, um, you know, fermenters, we sat down with home fermenters, professional fermenters, and they were all very willing to share their pro their process with us. So what, what do you think is something that you um, took away or impacted you from that trip? that you sort of do something differently now? Um, well, I collected recipes from those trips. I, and I, um, I wrote and tested a lot of the recipes that I, that I took away from the trip. 
Um, and if you if you want to check out those recipes yourself, they're all in the notes of the YouTube videos. Mm -hmm. We'll put those um, links up. Yeah. And um, so when I travel, I take back uh, different flavor combinations, different ways to use food. And, you know, I'm still cooking the same pork belly recipe that I wrote when I was there. And, um, you know, I'm still... Uh, looking into some of the rice wine practices that I learned when I was there. Um, and I actually still, I actually practice some meat and fish fermentation, which is something that I learned when I was there as well. Ah, okay. So that's, that's something that I've been recently looking into as well. So you're doing some uh, fish sauces and that, those sort of things. Um, not fish sauce, although we did make a fish sauce when we were at Sandor's um, this spring, um, which I, I don't know how it turned out yet because it was just anchovy guts, koji, and salt when I left. Mm, mm -hmm. um, and it, will, it probably won't be fish sauce until I go back again next year. <laughs> right. Um, but the fish fermentation that we learned there is really interesting. It's um, using like rice wine lees and um salt and chilies um to preserve fish without needing any refrigeration um and interestingly enough um this is similar to a japanese technique that i learned as a chef as well mm, okay i'm i'm just trying to connect all the dots here so you you got the um rice wine leads which is probably mostly yeast is that right and then you got salt, um, yeast, and lacto fermentation. So you know, sake sake is um, sake is three different kinds of fermentation happening at once, in in varying amounts. And the, the success of your sake generally depends on how much of each kind of fermentation you've got going on. So you have like the Aspergillus orze, um, creating enzymes that break down carbohydrates that create sugars for the yeasts, right? So that's one is the aspergillus orze, two is the yeast, and then three is uh, lactic acid bacteria. Mm, okay, so then you get all of those and you add those in with the fish and the salt. And you said something else, is there some spices or something? Fish and salt and, and fresh rice as well, which is more food for the lactic acid bacteria. Mm. And then... Um, yeah, they use chilies and flour peppercorn in everything over there. Oh, that's fantastic. I think I'll have to try that next. You know, on, on the podcast, we talk about fermentation, but we talk about soil health as well. And mm -hmm. and um, I'm really big into Korean natural farming, which is, uh, you know, Japan and Korea and all those areas, they, they have their own style of natural farming. But uh, one of the preparations they make is fish amino acids. And you basically get some of the naturally collected microbes that you collect on rice, throw it into mm -hmm. um, fish, just roughly chopped up fish. You can have the fish guts and everything in there and mix, it, mix mm -hmm. that with equal parts of sugar. And so mm. then the, the sugar draws out all the, all the juices and eventually the whole thing turns into a, a sort of like a not a paste, a, a very thick liquid. And you use that on your garden, but the guys who are really into it, they'll actually use that <laughs> and they put that in their kimchi as well to help kick off their kimchi. That sounds hardcore. So it, 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 it is hardcore. <laughs> but it's interesting that where, you know, 
there's such similarities between mm-hmm. fermentation of food and what's going on in the soil. And I wanted to just highlight that a little bit. Now that you're teaching, have you come across any sort of like um, of the health benefits of, of fermentation and how it may be connected through agriculture? Um, I mean, I think that if you look at cultures like these cultures that we saw in that particular village and they have lots of fermentation traditions and they're also masters of, um, of, you know, animal and land husbandry, you know, they take care of their, um, their livestock and their fields in such a beautiful and poetic way. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, um, I think it's really inspiring to see how these different traditions, um, speak into one another, you know, those traditions, like, for example, the one you're talking about where they use sugar and sugar instead of salt makes sense if you're dealing with the soil, right? So the sugars are not going to impede the microbe, the microbes in the earth. If you put a ton of salt down on the earth, it's not going to be good for it. Mm. Um, and, uh, in, that particular village that we were in as well, they have like a sour rice soup that they make. And throughout Southwestern China, I'm starting to learn with my research is that the sour rice soup, which is just rice water, rice washing water that's been left to sour, um, that is used for pickling vegetables. Mm. It is used for, like you're saying, like creating um, earth amendments, like amending the earth. Um, and it's also used for washing hair and face. Mm. Um, it's used for cooking and it's used for pickling tea leaves. You know, the famous, um, the famous tea leaf salad from Cambodia is, is a rice water fermentation. Um, I'm not sure if this is really answering your question, but it's just so fascinating to me to be in such a large country like China and see that, um, you know, throughout the whole land, there are so many things that are the same, you know, similar ingredients, similar practices, but then you delve deeper down the rabbit hole into each individual area and then things start to get different approaches get so different, Mm. um, that there's just such a, uh, a vast number of approaches. Um, and it's almost hilarious to see us today, you know, we've, we're raising the probiotic flag, so to speak. And, you know, we're, we're saying that, you know, these things will save the world and these things are so great for you. You got to get, you got to get down with, you know, probiotic, whatever it is like face cream, uh, toenail clippers, uh, you know, probiotic jam, probiotic uh, shoes. And, um, you know, meanwhile, there are all of these traditions throughout the world who've been just practicing these things without necessarily understanding the scientific significance of it, but Mm. completely and utterly understanding the, um, the social and cultural significance of these things because they, they do them over and over again because they work and they do them over and over again because that's the flavor of who they are and where they come from. Mm-hmm. And they have centuries of trial and error and and they're still doing it. So there's something to it and it's and it's beneficial for you. Maybe we, from, we in the Western culture could learn a little bit from them. You know, it was really funny in Yunnan – 
we met a group of people that were, um, they were kind of cult-like. They followed a master from um, Malaysia and um, they were all about making fermented fruit wines and fermented earth amendments. Mm. And they they were vegetarian, they farmed themselves and, um, you know, they, uh, you know, they're, they're good people. They're obviously like following some interesting points of view that, uh, drove them to, drove them down some interesting paths. Um, but it was almost like there was like a slightly Hare Krishna vibe okay. about the whole thing. Right. Um, the, one of the boys that we were with, he was, he was like joking, like, he, 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 the, the kid that we were with, he, he was like, will, will this stuff, will this stuff help me with anything in my life? And the girl was like, absolutely. This stuff will help you with absolutely everything in your life. Name something that it won't help you with. And I'll tell you how it will help you. Oh wow! And she said, <laughs> he said, how will it help me get a girlfriend? <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, absolutely. If you come to our meetings every week, you'll get a girlfriend. I guarantee it. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. So uh, I don't know what the point of all of that was, other than that there is sort of this, there's a fervor around it, and I guess that that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you're inspiring people. Sandor's inspiring people. Hopefully, this podcast. Well, I know that this podcast is inspiring people to live probiotic. Get get involved with the rhythms, with the cycles, with um. To me, it's meditative, you know, of, of doing mm-hmm. these fermentations. So what's, what's cool. And it's, I think like, I think it's important not to get too, um, too big on yourself when you, when you're, when you're, you know, so, so I could get up on a soapbox and I could say, well, you know, there's th- 3000 years of this culture doing things this way. So this is the way you have to do everything. Mm. And it would be really easy to get up and, and say that and, and become like the, you know, choose the one thing that I would tell the whole world, this is what, this is how you got to do it. Mm. Um, but I, th- I really think the cool thing about following the rhythms of culture is that it doesn't matter if you come from 3000 years of tradition or if you're just a kid in the woods walking around and paying attention. Mm-hmm. Right, so you're gonna you're gonna learn something either way. Yeah, yeah. So whether you have like all the trial and error from all your ancestors in your back pocket, or whether you just go walking every Friday and you take the same path and you see different things every single time, you're gonna learn something, and you can use that in your life and apply it to being you know, a happier, healthier human being. Mm, that's good wisdom. I'm going to, I'm going to take that on board for myself for sure. So Mara, um, what, what are some of the things that you're working on at the present? What are you excited about? What are you looking forward to? Um, I am looking forward to um, making season two of People's Republic of Fermentation, the films with Sandor. Um, we have some plans Um we have ju- we just filmed a Kickstarter video in Tennessee um, just two weeks ago, and um, so our Kickstarter will launch in 
this summer and our plans are to go travel in Taiwan and in the Shanghai area um, next next February. Mm. That's great. And so it's going to be the same crew or you have different people going there? Um, pretty much the same base crew. And then the reason we're doing the Kickstarter is that we'd like to bring one extra camera person with us uh, to help capture, you know, different um, angles and to capture audio. I think one of the things that was really missing from our first go around, it was it was very much guerrilla filmmaking because it was just three of us. Um, so because we didn't have good audio, we just wrote and um, recorded voiceovers after the fact and it was very visual with voiceovers. Mm-hmm. I think that if we had someone along to, to capture audio, we could have more sort of... Um, uh, more, more discourse. Mm, yeah. Yeah. More interactive yeah. on the ground. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, I would love for you to share with us a little bit of, of a takeaway of uh, what's something simple that, that people could ferment at home. One, one of your sort of um, uh, suggestions to really get people going, get people inspired if they've, Maybe they've made sauerkraut once or twice, or maybe they've never done anything at all, but something really simple to get people going. Um, this is probably a terrible suggestion for Australia because you're going into wintertime now, right? Yep. Yep. Um, but for the summertime, I always love to ferment um, lightly fermented beverages. And I find that to be so approachable and so diverse and fun. And you can literally make a starter out of anything. I was super inspired by Pascal Baudot's book, actually, where he, um, or maybe it was his Instagram, where he would use pine needles, or not pine needles, pine cones, mm-hmm. as to capture yeast, to capture wild yeast. And then he would take that wild yeast that he captured and he'd make like, you know, whatever crazy uh, forest floor ingredients beer that he was going to make um, using that wild yeast that he kept from the pine cone. So then I started thinking, okay, what can I, what can I harvest wild yeast from? And what can I make like fun summer beverages out of? And then I, uh, you know, so for example, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, a, um, elderberry tree near my house and it has these beautiful elderflower blooms in the springtime so i made an elderflower mead which i enjoyed in two ways um like i i made the wild fermented mead and with the flowers in it captured the wild yeast and i could i made that into like a fizzy drink like a soda and then i fermented some of it for longer to make it into um a hard alcoholic beverage Interesting. Okay, we have elderflower um, blooming at the moment. So, so how, yeah. how how would you go about actually doing that? Just get the flowers, um, add them to some unpasteurized honey, so some good raw honey. Um, I use the the I use a one to four honey to water ratio, which is the same. Um, t- is the same as um, Sandor's uh, mead recipe in wild fermentation. Um, and then I stir it every day, like two, three times a day, whenever I can remember to stir it, stir it like crazy to attract the wild yeasts in 
there's already yeast on the flowers as well. And there's already like wild yeast in the honey too. So invariably that'll start bubbling. And then once it starts bubbling, you can take what you want to turn into a soda pop and put that into a sealed container and leave it on your counter for a day or two to, for, so it gets fizzy. And then you put that in the refrigerator and enjoy it. Um, and then you take what you want to become um, mead into an airlocked uh, container. And then you let that continue to ferment for a couple of months. And then you rack it, which is basically just taking off the dead yeast from the bottom and moving it from one container to another. And then you let it continue to ferment. And if you can wait as long as a year, <laughs> then you enjoy it. Um, but I don't think mine lasted that long. <laughs> That's the problem, isn't it? You have all these ones. Oh, I'm going to try a little bit of this, try a little bit. Oh, that one's nice. That's I'm going to have a little bit of more. That's why you need a seller, just so that you can lose things in there and, and have happy discoveries later on. That's right. I, I actually um, yeah. tried some. I was like, okay, I'm going to just ferment molasses, just use a little bit of oh, a ale yeast and, and try it. Mm -hmm. And I tried it. I was like, whoa, this is really strong. I'm going to put it in some bottles, some Grolsch bottles. And I just tried one the other day. I, I would say it's a – I can taste why they f distill it into, into rum. <laughs> um, but it was an interesting experiment. You know, I left it for like, I think 18 months and yeah, it was mm -hmm. fizzy, very strong, that sort of tart molasses flavor that I, I totally forgot about and then thought, yep, I'm going to try that. That's great. So, so anyway, like I challenge you to go find other sources of wild yeast, whether it's the honey or the flowers or, you know, bit leaves off of trees or pine cones or pieces of fruit. You know, I made another, I made another, um, wild fermented beverage with cherries recently. So, mm. you know, use using cherries and just stirring them like crazy in sugar water, um, until it starts to bubble. And then you can turn that into soda pop, um, or into, into wine if you want to wait for longer to drink it. Um, I do have a new, I do have a new member of my, of my, um, repertoire which i have actually yet to crack out yet which is uh, i have a um a still oh wow okay yeah so i i recently um managed to get a hold of a it's called a milk can still mm -hmm. and uh it's a converted steel milk can um with like a uh it's got an evaporative column on the top and then um, like an arm on the side of it that you run cold water through. Um, and I'm still doing some research. I want to make sure I don't, you know, make my friends and family blind. Yeah. Um, but I have, I have got some of that cherry, um, cherry booze. That, that's the first thing that I'm going to put through my still. Mm. You know what? That is a great idea. I, um, I've been looking at stills as well because well, this last Christmas, I made mead. And in fact, I made 54 litres of mead. And you know what? <laughs> it didn't turn out very good. <laughs> so uh -huh. I, have, I have 54 litres. I mean, it's okay, but I, I wouldn't give it as a present. Let's just put it that way. And so okay. what do you do with 54 litres of, <laughs> of alcohol? I guess you distill it. Yeah, and that sounds really yummy. And um, the cool thing I've, I've been re I've been reading this book called The Botany of Desire, um, which is all about different plants and um, fruits and 
grains that have been turned into alcohol mm. over the years. It's sort of like a, it's a fun little um, book that touches upon all of these different um, plant ingredients. Um, and uh, it's really cool to think, okay, you can, what, what else can your mead be? You can add bitters into that. Um, you can, you know, once you've distilled it, you can mix different herbs and stuff into that. Mm -hmm. Um, or what, or you could, you could, you could put it in a smoked barrel and age it. Like there's so much that can be done, um, with that process. It's really kind of exciting. Mm, The botany of desire. Great. Well, well, we'll definitely put the uh, to link to that. That's on my reading list, in fact. So, fantastic. <laughs> um, so, before we before we wrap up, Mara, um, any sort of last thoughts or wise words that you want to um, share, <laughs> share with us? You've already shared with us heaps, but any sort of last final words? Um, I think that. I think that it's just all about process. Um, the more that we can all be involved with the production of our food, um, the better off we'll all be. Mm. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, so you have, we'll put the links to these, the People's Republic of Fermentation. Do you want to plug any other um, workshops that you're doing or talks or books or anything like that? Um, I'll be teaching in Oaxaca, uh, Mexico. I'll be teaching a class on Asian fermentation. Um, I can't remember the dates, but I'll, I'll share that with you by, by email. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. Thank you so much, Mara, for joining us today on The Probiotic Life. Thanks for having me, Ben. Thank you. Thank you for your time. I like what Mara said. It's all about process. Be involved. Be involved with living a probiotic life. You can check out the links in the notes of everything that we talked about. You can find out what Mara is up to. You can check out her Facebook, Instagram, and her website and the events that she is involved with. I appreciate everyone who's taken time to write a review. And if you haven't done so already, why don't you do one right now? Remember, next episode will be a bit about the evolution of the probiotic life and a bit about my personal journey on this journey of the probiotic life. May the beneficial microbes be with you. And until next time, cheers. Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life.